Sabbath School, Lesson 10, May 30th to June 5. Hi, my name is Jonathan Peterson. I'm the Sabbath School Superintendent at Coffs Harbour Church, and I'm happy to be sharing this week's Sabbath School lesson with you. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is amazing. We love reading your word. We love how you speak to us through your word. Please speak to us as we study your word and we reflect upon its accuracy and its value in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two main reasons that the Bible is not accepted as a historical document by many. The first is that in the Bible, there are miracles and details of the supernatural. And um, many people just can't accept that that actually happened. And so they discount the Bible as being historically accurate for that reason. The second reason that people don't accept the Bible as a historical document is because they do not want to be subject to God and his laws. They love sin too much. They want to live independent of God. And so if they can persuade themselves that the Bible is fictional, then God is fictional and they don't have to subject themselves or submit themselves to his authority and they can live as they choose to live and do what is right in their own eyes. So the two reasons are the stories of miracles in the supernatural and the will of man to refuse to submit to God. However, it does show a clear bias to not accept the Bible as a um, historically accurate primary source because normally when ancient manuscripts are found, they are accepted as a primary source and as a, a uh, historically accurate source. Only when um, fictional stories are clearly being told is that accepted as fictional. However, the Bible does not present itself, does not present the stories and the characters and the places it's fictional, so this is where the Bible is unique in that it um, there are more manuscripts of the Bible than any other ancient manuscripts. So if you want to talk about you know characters in the past such as Alexander the Great or the Caesars, there are more manuscripts of biblical texts than there are for any of these characters in history, and yet scholars tend to accept their manuscripts and other archaeological evidence for to, to um, for these characters and to justify the acceptance of uh, the historical accuracy of these sources, um, they consider them they consider them above the Bible in terms of their historical accuracy, um, even though yeah, the Bible has many more manuscripts. Now, not only that. Um, but the, uh, there's a tendency to question, constantly question the historicity of the Bible, and this has led to the assumption that much of the Bible was just made up. So if we, the, the, the thinking goes like this, if there are miracles, then someone's made the story up, and therefore every element of the story must be made up. The other issue they have is, they've had in the past is this, if archaeologists haven't found evidence of it, then it's not true. 
Well, there are two problems with, um, with that line of reasoning. Firstly, not everything survives in the ancient world and can be subsequently dug up by archaeologists. Many, many things perish, and only really the, the, the main things that survive are things, firstly, that are written in stone, and secondly, things that were deemed worthy of recording, so relating to political figures and major events. And the Bible doesn't necessarily always record what the world considers to be major political, um, uh, significant, world-changing events. So that's the first reason that um, archaeology does not find everything that's recorded in the Bible. The second, um, the second reason uh, that archaeologists don't find everything is that, well, not everything has been found. To assume that everything that has been left behind has already been found is a, a grave mistake because archaeologists are still finding year after year they're finding new uh new things new pottery new new clay tablets new even new manuscripts things are being found all the time so to make a claim that something because something in the bible whether it be a place or a person has not been found um by archaeologists has not been found to be mentioned in other sources by archaeologists therefore it's not True, therefore it's made up, that's, um, that's naive because as has happened in the past, archaeologists have made the assumption that there have been fictional elements to the Bible and they've made a claim, for example, that the Hittites didn't exist and then of course archaeological evidence emerges proving that the Hittites were in fact, and many other things as well, are in fact real. So historical evidence does support the Bible, um, and we it's it's a naive and short sighted to assume that just because there's no so called archaeological archaeological evidence for it, then it's fictional. Now, what's interesting is some of the things that are accepted as as primary sources to to prove historical events could be just you know. A one inch, a one square inch piece of pottery, um, but we could have, you know, a complete manuscript of a book, of the Bible, or you know, the bulk portions of a manuscript, and that's not accepted. Um, and even though there's multiple manuscripts of the Bible, which are consistent in their translation, so they don't, they don't uh, demonstrate any significant variation over long periods of time. Um, Historians still struggle to accept the Bible as a, as a historically accurate um, source. Now, I don't want to focus too much on the archaeological discoveries. There's quite a lot of that mentioned in the lesson, and I'd simply be just uh, duplicating that and reading that out to you. And you can read that in the lesson yourself. Not only that, but there's even more online. It's very, very, very easy to find these days. Uh, there are more and more new discoveries each year, and it's so the, the, the archaeological evidence in support of the Bible is so abundant that it really it's quite foolish to question the historicity of the Bible any longer, and yet people still do it. Now, many scholars, oh, just before I um, 
go on to that. Uh, there is a book, uh, sorry, there is a magazine, a publication uh, called Biblical Archaeology that if you're interested, you can have a look at, you can sign up to that. And that um, will keep you abreast of um, what's happening in contemporary archaeology and how that supports the Bible. Now, many scholars now accept that there are elements of historical accuracy in the Bible, it cannot be denied. For example, geographical sites, uh, cities, towns, rivers, valleys, all of those things that obviously uh, match with what we know from, uh, from history through archaeology uh, and manuscripts and so on. So that can't be denied. And then you've got significant events uh, which correspond with archaeological findings and also some significant people. But what scholars and historians will say is that whilst some elements of the Bible are historically accurate, some obviously can't be trusted because God's in there, because the miraculous appears, because there's faith involved. What I want to have a look at now is the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib. It's a very, uh, it's a fascinating story. It's uh, featured in Monday's lesson. What we'll do is we'll go to Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. And we'll start with verses 1 to 3, just to get the context of this story. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field, once again, very specific details here indicating that this is not just a made-up uh, fictional land. It took place in a real location. Verse 3, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. So, here we have the beginning of the story where Sennacherib has captured the fortified cities of Judah and uh, is heading to Jerusalem. Now, let's go to chapter 37 and verses 1 to 4. Okay, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth, went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. So they were... In a, in a state of panic that they were going to be conquered. Jerusalem was going to be conquered by Sennacherib and his armies. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. So all the other towns had been taken and just Jerusalem was still standing. Go to verse 14. Hezekiah received the letters from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. 
And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, and throne between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words that Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. So he's begging to God. He's pleading with God. Please have mercy on us. Please do not let us be conquered by uh, Sennacherib. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings, sorry, verse 18. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. Yeah, they're a great army. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. So here is Hezekiah pleading, pleading for the deliverance of Israel. Now, the story continues in verse 36. We find out what happened to Sennacherib's army. So the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer, and this was his response. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Wow. No wonder whenever angels appeared to man, the very first thing they say is, don't be afraid. Here we have one angel slaying 185,000 men in one night. Now, I want to share with you something very interesting that corroborates with this story. My son Christopher, who's uh, studying at Avondale College at the moment, he's in fourth year of theology, has been studying in particular this book uh, called Ancient Near Eastern Text Relating to the Old Testament. Very long title of a book. I'll say it again. Ancient Near Eastern Text Relating to the Old Testament. Now, essentially what this book is, it's a compilation of archaeological texts that um, mention Bible characters, places, events, and so on. So you can just type in, you know, something from the Bible, from the Old Testament, type in David, and it will show you any references to David in archaeological findings. And then you can see how that parallels with the Scriptures. Now, he pointed out to me, my son Christopher, um, that there's quite a, there was a, um, a stone prism found, and on that stone prism was written this story, but written by, obviously it was commissioned by Sennacherib. Um, so he'd had this story written to, um, to, uh, to record his deeds. Now, there's this, uh, something very interesting about, how, uh, about this story and how it parallels with the Bible story. So I'll read to you uh, the translation of what was written on the stone prism that was recorded by Sennacherib. As to Hezekiah the Jew, so firstly, he acknowledges that Hezekiah is a real person and he's a Jew. He's a, he's a historically um, 
you know, verifiable person. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts and to the countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them. So that's exactly what the Bible tells us. The fortified cities surrounding Jerusalem, he conquered them. Um, and then he goes on to say how he conquered them. I drove out of them 200,150 200, people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small, um, big and small cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. So he just took everything for himself. Himself, that's Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. So here Sennacherib is boasting. I took all the cities surrounding Jerusalem, and then I came to Jerusalem, and my army surrounded him, just as the Bible said. Okay, so what does Sennacherib say after that? I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city's gates. And then the story goes on and talks about other things. The story does not say that Sennacherib conquered Jerusalem. So he had 185,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. And then what? Did he change his mind? Did he have pity on Jerusalem? That's not the Assyrian way. Did he get bored? Say, so, oh, I think I've had enough fighting. We've conquered the small cities. Let's just leave the capital. What foreign army does that? When you've got the capital city on its knees, and of course that is the primary target, you just pack up and go home. Now, Sennacherib doesn't mention what the Bible mentions, that his entire army was destroyed that night, because what we find in um, in the recordings of ancient kings and rulers, is they really only ever talk about the, their achievements. They never talk about their failures. And this is, for me, is another reason why I trust the Bible more than, trust the, the, the truth or the, the, um, the veracity of the Bible more than I trust these other ancient documents. Because these other ancient documents and, and, uh, and, and sources, they have a very biased perspective. They tend to... Um, tend to tell it from the perspective of the one writing, and they tend to only promote that which glorifies the the king or the ruler who has commissioned for the this to be written. The Bible, however, talks about the good and the bad of everyone, and that's why I believe we can trust it more, uh, because it doesn't appear to show the, that same kind of bias. <clears throat> so the the fact that. Um, the fact that uh, Sennacherib went to all this effort to surround Jerusalem and then nothing happened, didn't conquer them. He didn't record it, but he didn't record that his, um, troops, were, his troops were killed. So the ancient record's a little bit like Facebook. You know, people only want to post positive things on Facebook, put forward their best image. They only show what makes them look, look good. However, what it does show is this story does corroborate with the biblical account. Yes, he conquered the, the surrounding uh, smaller towns and villages, came to Jerusalem, and that's as far as he got. That's what the Bible says, and that's what he says. The Bible just explains why he didn't go into Jerusalem. 
Let's go to uh, Sabbath lesson. Uh, God is active in history. Um, you know, the Bible is, is really is really clear in explaining how God is active in history. We have the creation, the call of Abram, the exodus, uh, the manna, the promised land, then selecting a king, then rebuking his people through the prophets, and then allowing his people to be punished by uh, by the Babylonians, taken to exile, brought back, um, working through Nehemiah and Ezra. You know, it's just constant. You can't you can't not see the working of God um, in history when you read the scriptures. However, I think um, probably the best summary of God's work in history can actually be found in Acts chapter 7. So if you turn to Acts chapter 7, this is the, this is the chapter about um, the stoning, stoning of Stephen. But before he's stoned, he gives this fairly lengthy speech. And in that speech, he talks about God's work through history. It's a complete summary, really, of the history of Israel. Now we'll look at a few examples. So in verse 2, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So there we go. Firstly, God appears personally to our father Abraham. Uh, Then we go down to verse 6. God is speaking to Abraham. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Uh, Then we go down to verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. Once again, God's intervening constantly throughout history. Tells the story of Joseph and Jacob. And then uh, we go to verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Story continues. Um, Let's go to verse uh, 31. Verse 30 uh, says, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. 31, when he saw this, he was amazed. And verse 32, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then we have God working through Moses. So here, um, Stephen is going through the history of Israel and how God was working constantly throughout history, directing history, directing it, intervening in history. God is not a God that stands aloof, that has created this world and then sits down on his throne with his feet up And his arms crossed and says, well, let's see what happens. God has not done that. He has intervened constantly throughout history to try to reconnect with mankind and to bring about the plan of salvation that was planned even before the creation of the world. Let's have a look at Tuesday's lesson. Another, just another little interesting thing. I'm not going to go through the whole lesson, but this one's about Daniel. Now, um... Christopher also showed me this one from his, uh, from his book that he's been studying. Nebuchadnezzar, as we know, lost his sanity for seven years. Now, um, 
archaeology records that there were after Nebuchadnezzar there were two kings that reigned, and then uh, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, co-reigned. That's what the archaeological source says. Those two kings reigned for a total of seven years before Belshazzar put his son on the throne. Amazing. So we know Belshazzar was insane for seven years. Then we have two kings reigning for seven years. That, uh, is, that we find out from archaeology. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his senses, as we find out in the Bible. And at that time, he then appoints his uh, son to be the king. Let's go to Wednesday, the historical Jesus. Um, okay. There's a really a lot of examples here. Um, the, the lesson has quite a, a number of, of examples. Uh, and probably not, not much need for me to, to mention those examples. But um, what, what, what I do want to read to you is a quote, a very famous quote from um, uh, an ancient Jewish historian called Josephus. Uh, which testifies to the historical accuracy of the um, the Gospels. And Josephus writes, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds, uh, some translations, miraculous deeds, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, would you believe it? Of course, some scholars doubt the authenticity of this. Um, <laughs> however, they can't deny that this appears in all of the Greek manuscripts that, are f that ha have been found uh, credited to Josephus. And yet still, they, they claim that earlier manuscripts that we don't have were corrupted by Christians. And those corruptions of the manuscripts have filtered through to the later ones that we have. So it just shows you the bias that people have, the assumptions that people have. Um, you know, there's very few scholars that actually question, very few, I don't think there's any serious scholars that actually question that Jesus was a historical figure. But they certainly are a bit worried by a quote like this from Josephus that indicates that Jesus performed miracles, that he was the Messiah, uh, that he was raised to life, you know, all these other um, supernatural elements of Jesus' life. They, they don't like that. They certainly don't like a secular historian saying things like that. And so without any evidence whatsoever, they just say, well, we believe it was corrupted by the Christians and those corruptions have filtered through to the manuscripts that we have. The only manuscripts that we have uh, just so happen to have this corruption in it. Now, I think it's way easier to just believe the Bible because the Bible, sorry, the, the Gospels, the Gospel accounts of Jesus, they are written by eyewitnesses. Josephus was not an eyewitness, so I believe they're much more accurate 
um, accurate account of the life of Jesus. I don't think we need this validation from Josephus, but um, you know, if it helps some people, then good. But uh, otherwise, I think you may as well accept the eyewitness account. Um, at least you've got uh, Matthew and John who are eyewitnesses, and then you've got Mark and Luke who uh, who got whose sources were eyewitnesses. Okay, let's go to Thursday. Thursday, faith and history. Um, so Acts 7, as I said, Stephen mentions a lot about God's involvement in history, and Stephen didn't have any doubts about the historicity of the Scriptures. Jesus, too, had no doubts. Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve as real people, not as some kind of um, you know, fictional characters in an analogous story. Then we have Jesus talking to Nicodemus about Moses and how um, as Moses lifted up you know, the bronze serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, Jesus spoke about the manna that uh, came down from heaven when he said, you know, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Uh, he mentioned Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. He mentioned Jonah, comparing you know, elements of his ministry to Jonah. He mentioned Abraham when he told the Pharisees that they weren't children of Abraham. Jesus constantly made reference to the Old Testament, indicating that he had no doubt whatsoever that all of the stories and all of the people and all of the places in the recorded in the Old Testament were real um, and they are factual. Nothing is uh, put in there as, as fiction. And then, of course, you can see in your lesson, there's a whole list of characters that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. So all of the New Testament writers that make reference to Old Testament characters make reference to them as historical figures. None of them make, don't even have a hint of suggesting that any of these characters were fictional or any events were fictional. Over the years, um, my faith has grown a lot. Maybe when I first became a Christian, I might have said, look, about 50% of my belief, 50% of my, what do you call it? Yeah, I suppose my belief was based on evidence. I had some evidence for God. And then 50% was faith. So I had to throw in a lot of faith. But when I say faith, I suppose I'm talking about, you know, taking that step where you don't fully know and so you, you, you take a step into the unknown and you just, you, you hope that it works. And I think that's the way for a lot of people when they're young in the faith, they don't have all the evidence, but they do take a leap of faith. And then over the years, as you grow in your faith, well, as over the years, what happens is God helps you to grow in your faith by providing more and more evidence. For example, archaeological discoveries answered prayers, changed lives, your own and other people's, Bible prophecy, the unity and beauty of the scriptures, the depth and complexity of the scriptures, um, fulfilled prophecy, creation, etc. There's way too much to mention. And as this evidence just accumulates more and more, I've got to the point now where I, in terms of faith, uh, I would say, um, I, with all the evidence I now have to, f to, to fully 
commit to God and surrender to God, I, I'd only need a tiny, tiny element of faith, 1% faith, because I've got about 99% evidence. The evidence is so abundant to me that really, um, you know, I'm not taking uh, a leap into the dark. I believe I'm walking on solid ground because the evidence is there from a number of, uh, from a number of different perspectives. Okay, I just want to close by sharing, uh, sharing this first quote on, on the last day. On the Friday, there's a fantastic Ellen White quote. I can't word it any better, so I'm just going to read that to you guys. The Bible is the most ancient and the most comprehensive history that men possess. It came fresh from the fountain of eternal truth, and throughout the ages, a divine hand has preserved its purity. It lights up the far distant past, where human research in vain seeks to penetrate. In God's word only do we behold the power that laid the foundations of the earth and that stretched out the heavens. Here only do we find an authentic account of the origin of nations. Here only is given a history of our race, unsullied by human pride or prejudice. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know it to be true, and whilst others question it, we have full confidence that in your word you have revealed your interactions with humanity in an accurate and inspired way. May we all continue to be blessed and strengthened in our faith and drawn closer to you as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.